This morning, I want to introduce an image that we're going to be exploring together throughout this year. Uh, It's an image that I believe can give us greater clarity and vision for who we are to be as the church. In this particular moment in history, in this particular place where we find ourselves, and really, it's, it's two images that each have quite a bit of depth to them, but when, when held together, uh, become all the more deep and, and beautiful and compelling. Uh, these images that I want to introduce came out of some time that the elders and I spent last year on a retreat together. Uh, we gathered together, set aside 48 hours Uh, to just gather and pray and listen and dwell in Scripture and reflect. And one afternoon, we we spent an extended amount of time simply in silence together, listening, praying, asking God, what might you have to say to us? Where might you be drawing us? As we sought direction from him. And after this time of, of silent listening, we came back together and we shared what we heard, what kind of experiences and and, and things came. And and in our sharing, these images began to emerge. And so the first image is the image of the table. The table, right? The table is a core image for us as a church, right? We have a table right here in our midst. Every week in our gathering, we are welcomed at the table, It's the place where we remember Jesus and receive from him. In many ways, uh, we've been exploring this image of the table over the past year, uh, right? It was a year ago that we spent several weeks looking at how Jesus spent most of his ministry at the table with people, right? Uh, he He just went from one table to another with sinners, with tax collectors, with religious leaders, with others. Jesus often brought people together at the table who would never have been found together in any other realm of life. And yet the table is where he did his ministry. It's this powerful image. The table is a picture of belonging. It's a picture of blessing. It's a place where everyone is invited to the life that Jesus offers, right? And then, if you remember last fall, we spent several weeks exploring the many feasts of the Old Testament. Again, seeing how God is a God who calls his people to gather at the table. And he says to them, thou shalt feast, right? You're to be a feasting people, The table is this place where we're reminded of the generosity of God and receive from his constant goodness. The table is this place of abundance and community. It's this place where we return to week after week to remember who Jesus is and who we are in him. So the table is this first image that began to to arise from our time together. And I believe this image gives us a good vision and and good direction for who we want to be as the church, for who we're called to be as the church. The table of the Lord is what we want to look like. 
We want to be a place of gathering and belonging, a place where the blessing and the presence of God can be tasted and seen. But there's another image that also began to emerge from our time as we reflected together. And that is the image of the wilderness. The wilderness. Uh, The wilderness, I think, is something that that we're all aware of to one degree or another. Right? We we have each had moments and seasons where life felt sparse, where, where purpose felt fleeting, where we were deeply aware of our need and looked around to see none of the resources to meet it. That's the wilderness. This kind of wilderness is one that we may have experienced on a personal level or an individual level, brought about by broken relationships, by a debilitating illness, by loss of employment, or some other challenging circumstance that arises. But wilderness can also be something that we experience on a communal level, together, right? I mean, over the past few years, our whole society has been thrust into a kind of wilderness from the pandemic and all of the various uh, political and, and social fallout and things that have happened, right? We've seen all these tensions arise, and we've, in many ways, been thrown into some kind of wilderness. Uh, and even as, as a church, right, we've experienced and been in some kind of wilderness over these past years as well. Uh, for a season, we were completely scattered uh, uh, apart from one another. We're in a kind of exile. And and last summer, some of you may remember, during our our morning Sunday conversations, we spent several weeks just reviewing and tracing the whole story of Scripture, from Genesis to Revelation, looking at, at the big picture of God's story. And then we asked this question, so where are we in the midst of this story? Right? Which part of this story do you, do we most resonate with at this time. And through our conversations last summer, we began to hone in on Israel's time in exile. And many of us said, that feels like the experience that we're in the midst of. So we began to reflect on that. We saw how they were scattered from their homeland into a wilderness of unfamiliar territory. Strange people in a strange place. And we began to consider how we, the church, both the church in general, uh, but also this specific church here in Federal Way, have felt a sense of our own exile as strangers in a strange land at times. It's this picture of wandering in the wilderness, right? So at this retreat, out of this listening and prayer, these two images, the table and the wilderness, kind of emerged and and were set before us. And we were left with a conundrum. Because after all, these two images seem like polar opposites from one another, right? Uh, The table 
It's this picture of belonging and blessing, abundance and community. The wilderness, on the other hand, is a picture of isolation and desperation. Place of uncertainty and risk. How do these images fit together? Right? What, what does that look like? Is the wilderness just something that we have to bear for the time being? Something that we, we just we seek to escape it so we can finally get to the table? I don't think so. I think there might be a deeper invitation in these images for us. Because once we see how these two images fit together, we're not going to be able to unsee it. And we're going to start seeing it all over the place. So I want to look at a few places where we see these these two things, the, the, the wilderness and the table, come together throughout Scripture. Uh, instead of, of reading a single passage of Scripture uh, during our time today, we're going to be hopping through a few of them. So let me go ahead and pray for us, and we'll enter in. Oh Lord, we thank you for being a God who invites us to the table. And we thank you that even though we may find ourselves in the wilderness, you are still God. Blessed be your name in the desert place and in the wilderness. Blessed be your name. God, I pray as we consider the words of your scripture together this morning, you would sharpen our minds and soften our hearts that we might know you and love you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So today I want to trace this theme by looking at Three stories in Scripture. Three people who fled into the wilderness, but also encountered God's table. The first story is of a woman named Hagar. We read her story in Genesis chapter 16, if you'd like to turn there with me. Genesis 16. Hagar's story occurs in the context of Abraham's household, who at the time was still just called Abram. God had chosen Abram and called him to leave his own people and follow God instead, wherever God would lead him. And God promised to make Abram into a great nation who would, through whom, bless all people of the world. The only problem with that was that Abram and his wife, Sarai, didn't have any children. And they were getting old. Uh, as another writer of scripture put it, um, advanced in years is, is what they were getting, right? They, they, had, they had really graduated up to that advanced level of age. So how would God turn Abram into a great nation if he didn't even have a great family? Right? I mean, a nation would require dozens of descendants, and Abram didn't even have one. So Sarai and Abram took things into their own hands. Sarai had an Egyptian slave named 
Hagar. And she took Hagar and handed her off to Abram so that a child might be brought into their family through those means. And Abram went along with it. And very soon, Hagar became pregnant with a son. And though this appeared to be the desired outcome, Sarai was not so happy about it, right? She began mistrusting and mistreating Hagar to the point that Hagar ran away. Hagar fled into the wilderness with no apparent destination other than getting away from Sarai. And this is where I want to pick up. Genesis 16, verse 7. Hagar has fled into the wilderness, and we read, The angel of the Lord found Hagar near a spring in the desert. It was the spring that is beside the road to Shur. And he said, Hagar, slave of Sarai, where have you come from, and where are you going? I'm running away from my mistress, Sarai, she answered. And then the angel of the Lord told her, go back to your mistress and submit to her. And the angel added, I will increase your descendants so much that they will be too numerous to count. And if you skip down to verse 13, Hagar responds. It says, she gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God who sees me. For she said, I have now seen the one who sees me. So here's Hagar. She's wandering in all different kinds of wildernesses. She begins the story in the wilderness of slavery, stuck in this household with no agency of her own. And then she's thrown into the wilderness of physical and emotional abuse as Abram sleeps with her and Sarai mistreats her. So finally she flees into the wilderness of the desert without safety, without provision. And one might think this is where her story goes to end, right? In pain and in tragedy. But then suddenly, the angel of the Lord appears. And in the middle of the desert wilderness, Hagar is finally seen, truly seen. Not as merely a slave servant, a baby incubator, a social inconvenience. No, she is seen and addressed by name. Hagar. And then words of blessing and promise are spoken to her. I will increase your descendants so much that they will become too numerous to count. And so she responds by giving God a name. Now, some of you may remember a couple of weeks ago, uh, on January 1st, New Year's Day, we gathered, and, and that Sunday we prayed together. And Chris led us in a prayer that reflected on many of the names that God has given throughout Scripture. We prayed for, uh, to Jehovah Jireh, the Lord who provides. El Shaddai, God Almighty. 
Jehovah Rapha, the Lord who heals, and on and on. These are some of the prayers that we prayed a couple weeks ago. Uh, But there are many ways that God is named throughout Scripture. But the very first name that is given to God by a person in the whole of the Bible is right here. Hagar, the very first person to encounter God and say, here's what I'm going to call you. El Roy, the God who sees me. You are the God who sees me, for I have now seen the one who sees me. What an amazing, an incredible encounter. Hagar is in the midst of all kinds of wildernesses. Slavery, abuse, isolation, desperation, and yet it's precisely in the middle of the wilderness that God calls to her by name, comforting her and blessing her. And in the middle of the wilderness, she calls back and finds herself seated at the table of the God who sees her. The next story that I want to look at is one that many of us are probably very familiar with. It's the story of Moses. We read about his story in the book of Exodus. If you want to turn over there, we'll be reading from Exodus 3 in a moment. The book of Exodus opens up with an ironic twist of poetic justice. Instead of an Egyptian woman enslaved by Abraham's household, we have Abraham's numerous descendants enslaved by the Egyptian pharaoh. How the tables have turned. They were enslaved multiple times throughout the first chapter. It says they were mistreated ruthlessly as they were forced to work. And then Pharaoh further oppressed them by trying to whittle down their population and putting their children to death, just like the paranoid Herod who we talked about last week. And it's into these circumstances of enslavement, mistreatment, oppression, and death that Moses is born. But because of the cleverness and ingenuity of Moses' mother and older sister, and by all means the faithfulness of God, he is delivered from Pharaoh's schemes. Not only is Moses not killed as a baby, but he actually grows up in Pharaoh's household, away from the oppression and the pain of his people. But he cannot stay away from it forever. Because one day, Moses, is a grown man now, is wandering around and he witnesses an Egyptian abusing one of the Hebrew people, one of his own people who he came from. And he takes justice into his own hands. The text says that Moses looked this way and that and seeing no one killed the Egyptian and buried him in the sand. But he was eventually found out. 
And whenever the Hebrews found out about it, they didn't celebrate, hey, thanks for the revenge. Uh, They started accusing Moses of being a violent man. How do we know you're not going to do the same to us? And when Pharaoh learned about it, he was ready to execute Moses. And so Moses fled into the wilderness. He runs away. And again, there are many wildernesses that Moses faces. Right? There's the wilderness of belonging to an oppressed people that he was born into. There's the wilderness of growing up uh, in, in a home that he doesn't belong to. Right? So he belongs to this oppressed people, uh, but he's a stranger in this home. And then there's the wilderness of his own fury and rage that leads him to murder and the wilderness of his own guilt and shame that he finally flees into the wilderness of the desert. And so he goes there to try to begin all over again. He enters the land of Midian and joins with those people. He gets married and he becomes a shepherd. And it's while he's out there in the wilderness tending the sheep that he stumbles into something truly profound. Let's read Exodus 3, verse 1. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And there the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. And Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I'll go over and see this strange sight, why the bush does not burn up. And when the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. Moses said, here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals, for the place where you're standing is holy ground. And then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And at this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. From here, this God who sees begins to share with Moses that he has seen the pain of his people. He has heard their cry of distress. And this God is calling Moses to help rescue those people, to lead the charge. And what follows is this back and forth between Moses and God. Moses says, not me, right? Of course not. But God continues to reassure him. Finally, Moses asks God, but, but who even are you, right? What is your name? And God responds in verse 14. God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you're to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. 
God also said to Moses, Say to the Israelites, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my name forever. The name you shall call me from generation to generation. This phrase, I am who I am, is the foundation of the Hebrew name Yahweh, which in our Bibles is usually pictured as an all-caps Lord. Yahweh. And it was first revealed here to Moses in the wilderness. Moses had fled into the wilderness from Egypt. He was taking care of a flock of sheep in the middle of the wilderness when suddenly he found himself seated at the table of God's glory in a burning bush and being invited to join God in redeeming God's people and receiving the revelation of God's own name. Right there in the wilderness. No doubt this wilderness table of the burning bush prepared Moses for the many long years ahead of him when he would lead the nation of Israel into the wilderness where they all gathered about the table of God's glory as they were guided by pillars of cloud and fire, where they were fed manna from heaven and where they drank water from a rock. Beginning with Moses and the burning bush, the whole nation of Israel would gather around the table of God's glory in the wilderness. One more story. This third story we read in 1 Kings 19. 1 Kings 19, if you want to turn over there. This is the story of Elijah. After Israel arrived in the promised land, after they had established their kingdom and appointed kings like Saul and David and David's son Solomon, the kingdom divided and became shaky. Most of the kings were more concerned with political power and wealth than the ways of God. Most of the people were distracted by the religious practices and worldviews of their day rather than continuing to trust in God. So God rose up prophets to call the people and the kings back to him, to remind the people of who God was. And Elijah was one of these prophets. And he was a powerful prophet who spoke the word of God and saw it come to pass. He warned about a great drought that would come, and it came. The heavens shut up for years. He worked miracles among the people, providing food for a small family and even raising a young boy back to life. And the most public, most noteworthy, uh, most uh, radical moment of Elijah's career was this showdown that he had with the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. See, they both set up altars, and it was going to be, you know, this kind of competition, all right? The prophets of Baal were going to set up an altar, 
put at the sacrifice there, and then cry out to their God and wait for that God to, to come and consume the sacrifice. So they, they go first, uh, and they do this. And for hours, they're hollering, they're yelling, they're crying out to Baal, and nothing happens. Quite an embarrassment to them. But then it's Elijah's turn. And so Elijah sets up his altar, puts his sacrifice on there, but he doesn't stop at that. He says, all right, let's, let's splash some water on it. Do it again. Do it one more time. It's just drenched. It's soaking. And nevertheless, the moment that he calls on the name of the Lord, Yahweh, the God who sees, fire comes down and consumes the sacrifice that Elijah has put there. It is a raging success by all measures, right? Public, right in front of all these people. It's amazing. But it puts him at odds with the powers that be. So Elijah flees into the wilderness. That's where our story picks up. 1 Kings 19, verse 3. Elijah was afraid, so he ran for his life. And when he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servant there while he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness. He came to a broom bush, sat down under it, and prayed that he might die. I've had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. I am no better than my ancestors. And then he laid down under the bush and fell asleep. And all at once, an angel touched him and said, Get up, eat. He looked around, and there by his head was some bread baked over hot coals and a jar of water. So he ate and drank and then laid down again. And the angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched him and said, Get up and eat, for the journey is too much for you. So he got up and ate, and drank, and strengthened by that food, he traveled 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Horeb, the mountain of God. And there he went into a cave and spent the night. So Elijah's living in the wilderness, being a lone prophet in a country set against God. Then, He's in the wilderness of being hunted down by the authorities. And so he flees into the wilderness of Beersheba, which, by the way, is the same place that Hagar fled to. He's exhausted, discouraged, ready to give up, and then he's met by the angel of the Lord. Seated at a simple table of bread and water, Signs of God's tender love and care. But there's more, right? The story keeps going. He goes further on into the wilderness, journeys 40 days and 40 nights, and he finds himself in this mountain cave, the same mountain where Moses was whenever he saw the burning bush. And there, Elijah is told to go out, stand on the mountain, and await the presence of God. It's coming to pass by. 
And as he waits, there's a powerful earthquake, a great wind, a raging fire. But the story tells us God's not in any of these things. And finally, after all of that noise fades away, there's a gentle whisper, a still, small voice. And there, on the side of the mountain, in the middle of the wilderness, Elijah finds himself seated at the wonderful table of God's gentle and reassuring presence. Now, there are plenty more stories that we could look at throughout all of Scripture, but I won't keep you here for that long. But can you see the theme? Can you see the theme through each one of these? Do you see how these two images of the table and the wilderness fit together? These two images actually are not at odds with one another. From the stories of Hagar, Moses, Elijah, and and plenty others, we see that the wilderness is not something to escape in order to get to the table. Rather, the opposite is true. The wilderness is precisely the place where we find the table of God. It's in the wilderness that God meets us in our most desperate place. And I believe that's what we're called to be in this season. We are called to a table in the wilderness. We're not to escape our wilderness experiences, but to embrace them all the more. We're not to reject them, but to to receive them and ask God, what are you doing here? Where might I find you here? Because the wilderness is the place where we find the table of God. We're called to seek God's table in the wilderness. And I believe for those fellow travelers who are weary and wondering, we are called to be a table in the wilderness to them. There are those who, like Hagar, have been pushed out of God's household because of abuse and mistreatment. There are many in my own generation and younger, and those before as well, who have had it with the church. It's just a bunch of hypocrites. It's just a bunch of fools. What is there in the church? So they've run into the wilderness, just like Hagar. They need a table in the wilderness. There are those who, like Moses, have fled into the wilderness because of their own anger and bitterness, their own guilt and shame. Why should I be around any other people? I don't want to have anything to do with other people. They need 
a table in the wilderness. And there are those, like Elijah, who find themselves in the wilderness burnt out, exhausted, victims of their own success. Did you know this year, from my understanding, the Church of Christ at Federal Way turns 60 years old? January of 1963, I believe, was the, the first gathering. This church has been through quite a lot. And across the decades, there were times when there were hundreds of people. It looked a lot like that great success that Elijah had on the mountain with the fire. Maybe in this season, we're a little closer to Isaiah tired, weary, feeling alone, wondering where is everyone else? But it's right there in the wilderness that the still, small voice of God speaks. We too need a table in the wilderness. It's for this reason that the New Testament, the gospel of Jesus Christ, opens with a voice of one calling in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord. Because where else are you going to start setting the table? It's in the wilderness. And so we're going to continue exploring this image together in the coming weeks. But for now, my prayer for us is that we would find God's table right in the middle of the wilderness and that we ourselves might become a table in the wilderness for others. Amen.